This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Welcome back, everyone. I'm here again with Dr. David Morehouse. Today, we're going to discuss Open Search Outward, which was a program that military remote viewers ran to explore off-world or off-planet targets. David, welcome. Hi, Sean. Thanks for having me back. Always a pleasure. Yeah, it's great to be here. I always love our catch-up sessions before we actually start. <laughs> I know. This this time was shorter, though. Usually we spend like several hours. No. Time okay, I guess we should start now. So you asked me a question about if I could describe the process whereby in the remote viewing unit at DIA, Director of Technology and Science, we were doing off-planet targets. I think I should first just, you know, put this caveat in there that I don't know whether these were official or unofficial. My, my take is they were both. I know that there are former colleagues that, at least one, who says that this didn't happen. And what I can say is I know what I did and, and when I was there. And there were three principal people that I know that worked these kinds of targets a lot. One, you know, Ed Dames was kind of a facilitator of it. He also uh, did some of the work. Mel Riley, as you've heard in the Chaco Canyon story, myself, Gabrielle Pettengale. And I don't know if Lynn Buchanan ever, I don't recall seeing anything in the historical files from him, but I think it would be odd for him not to have done something, but you'd have to ask him. I would assume since, you know, I know that some off-planet work has been done by Joe McMonagle because you've seen, you know, him, his, his Mars remote viewing sessions that were done in support of at that time, I think. I don't know if those were done as part of the DT-S program or if they were done at DT-S, but in support of something that, that was going on at Stanford Research Institute International. So there's a lot of- What's the DT slash S? Is that the Directorate of Technology yeah, and Science? DIA is Directorate of Technology and Science. That was, okay. that was where the remote viewing program was housed. And it had its direct- High principal oversight was from Dr. Jack Verona, who was the chief scientist of DIA. In fact, as an army officer, he ended up being my senior raider. So you know what that means, right? Yeah. Right. Uh, and, and so there were, this was happening there. And in the historical, historical file cabinets, <clears throat> there were historical files of off-planet work. Now, again, you have to understand that Things that were done within the unit that were done, that were originated by the unit, those kinds of things happen. So Fern Gavin, or maybe one of the other program directors who was there before him, or maybe one of the directors working with the program manager or something else kind of steered some of this effort. But there's, I have no knowledge of anything coming from any place other than SRI. I don't think that Dr. Jack Verona or anybody in the DIA who are following through kind of official 
intelligence tasking channels would have ever gone down to the unit and said, hey, why don't you guys figure out a way to look out into the universe and see what you can find? Or why don't you look on the backside of the moon and see what you find? Or tell us what's in, you know, what's in the lava tubes of, you know, coming out of Olympus Mon. I don't think that would have ever come because that would have been, that would have been an only an official channel of, of requests for information. So that would have come into them and then they would have done that all source, throw it out there. But I don't think any of their customers were asking for that kind of stuff. That didn't stop the unit itself from saying, look, we can do this to look at something on the other side of this planet or something that happened, you know, in backward in time, or we can look at those kinds of things. So why then would we not just out of general curiosity want to look into the universe or to look on the dark side of the moon or to look all over Mars or some other planet to see if something is perceivable there. So there, there were historical files that targeted those kinds of things. So sort of known targets or, or, or known places of interest, like a galaxy, for example, or a particular planet, for example. <clears throat> those things would not have been as successful, particularly looking at something like the, let's say, M74 galaxy, without applying these techniques that we're going to talk about here. So in doing an open search outward, the premise is, is essentially this. You're going to be taking a group of remote viewers and you're going to shotgun blast them into a particular place within the universe. And you're going to have a concept of the target, which is simply something should be perceivable. We'll talk in detail about that in a moment. But you can't just throw them into the universe. You have to have a way in which you can designate or carve off or select a particular piece of the universe for them to look at. Otherwise, it's a shotgun blast literally into the universe. So the concept doesn't attach to anything of, of meaning. It doesn't have a locale, if you will. Even though that may be in motion, it doesn't have a location. It's just shoot out into the universe and see what happens, whatever you happen to bump into out there. That would have not been productive. So this all kind of starts when you try to understand how would we be capable of doing this? You have to understand that where we know what we now know about our universe or think that we know about our universe from a quantum mechanical perspective, cosmological perspective, however you want to look at it, is that it is, we know that it is moving, moving outward, expanding. So then the theory became, well, what's it expanding into and what's it expanding from, right? What was its point of origin and what's it expanding into? And if it's expanding, does it have an edge? Uh, and if it has an edge, then what was infinite is now mathematically finite. And so that's actually what's been discussed now for several decades by quantum mechanical physicists and cosmologists and you know, trying to work this out to determine what it might be. But this idea that it's expanding outward is a really powerful notion. It's also important to note that when you're talking about it expanding outward and talking about the idea of if it's expanding out, what's it expanding in? That to me 
is the thing that really lends this notion of infinite. Because let's assume that it began based on what we believe it did, which was from a point of singularity. It, it didn't blow out into something, but it came, it, it came from a point of singularity and is expanded outward and it has been expanding for X number billions of trillions of years, right, outward. And we know that because we can look at one galaxy and another and they're, they're calculating the speed with which they're separating. And they're multiplying that by multiple galaxies and different quadrants. And they're calculating, you know, a rate of expansion. And there are all sorts of theories about, will it stop expanding? And if it stops expanding, will it collapse? Or what will it do? But let's just let our minds run outside of just the confines of that scientific understanding for a moment and say that it's expanding outward. Then you hear notions of things like quantum foam, which is really just these are virtual particles. So it's not, it's not a, you can't draw a clear line between the two of them, but the idea is, and you'll hear many people like, like Deepak Chopra and others, Dr. Deepak Chopra saying things like, as is the, as is the micro, so is the macro. So this lends all sorts of interpretations within the world of quantum mind and understanding the universe back to the scientific perspective of if it's as is the micro, so is the macro, as is the macro, so is the micro, then they're relating just this visual representation of the quantum foam of space-time, these virtual products, I mean, virtual particles, where you've got matter and antimatter, you know, constantly appearing, disappearing, appearing, and disappearing. And it leads this idea of the model that we're creating visually is, as you see on the left-hand side of the screen, which is of all these quantum universes, these multiples of universe. Uh, and when we talked about Chaco Canyon, and we were talking about the fact that you're seeing something and it is gone, and then you see it again and it's gone. The idea is that if there are these transitional portals across universes, right, then that's what you would be seeing as you see these this cluster of balloons, right? You would see passageways between those universes. So what we're looking at and what we're dealing with may not be necessarily within our known quantifiable universe. It may be part of other universes that are attached to our universe as because our universe and all of the star stuff that came to create it had to come from somewhere. Where did it come from? And it lends new theories and ideas about the nature of black holes. Are they consuming here and pushing into another, into another quantum universe or into another universe? Is that what they're doing? We don't really know, but there are theories now surrounding that notion. And I guess what all of this means to us, there's, there's an image of quantum foam for you. That's a, that's a photograph of the head of beer on a, I mean, the head on a, yeah, very close up on stout. <laughs> so just so you know what it looks like, but that's the idea. I quick, I, quick, quick question. Yeah. yeah. Have you, have there ever been searches done on black holes? Uh, like what's yeah. inside them? Yep. Uh, at very advanced levels, I have done that. And the concept of the target is look, to look through the event horizon and describe what you see. Mm -hmm. uh, 
Now I'm giving you what I'm giving away a target that we normally do in advanced classes. So I don't want to go much further, but yeah. And people come back with information. And one of the primary objectives in doing something like that has been to, can you, in, an, in that kind of a directed search through a particular suspected black hole, because we don't, we don't really know where they are. It's not like we're, we're seeing evidence of them, but you know, there's still questions about whether what we're seeing is what we think it is kind of a deal. So the idea in looking at through a black hole has been kind of substantiated by, you know, the blend of science and science fiction, where people are talking uh, about what we postulate will happen there, but, but it is what's on the other side of it. And what viewers have described in advanced classes is they have described another universe. There, there's, there's another, there's another, not a replica, but another universe, which looks like ours. And then one of the taskings, gosh, 15 years ago was to try to find a piece of technology there for each viewer to identify a piece of technology and to bring that technology back. And then they were given, they were given the materials with which to create a model of that technology and then to sit in the entire class and each viewer would describe what that technology was based on their perceptions of that technology, which was fun to do. It wasn't, I mean, was it something that you could chalk up and say, oh, that's it. You know, we got, we nailed something. No, it's, it's just, that was just for experiential fun, you know, to do that. And to see if if you're sent through a particular opening into another universe, shall we say, what are you going to bring back? And the idea was they were just told, no matter where you're going, wherever the concept of the target is, bring back technology, bring something back. So was that sort of front loaded? Yeah, of course it was. Was there some other way to do that? Not really. I wanted them to have the experience with carrying that little bit of front load in to, to find something. And so whether what they find is an absolute or, you know, they're really looking at something as they are detecting, decoding, and objectifying it to them, it is what they're perceiving. Again, there's no way to develop feedback for that. There's no way to prove it, obviously, right. but it, it's still valuable for them to do it because in their experience, they were looking at technology that was supporting or part of some sort of a planet. And or some sort of a civilization or something. And they brought that back and, you know, sketched it and had an understanding or an impression of what it was. So I don't know. I don't, <clears throat> I don't find that really any different than what Omura and others were doing at, you know, Sony when they were, when they had a paranormal research, right. Organization within Sony. They did. I had no idea about that. <clears throat> you didn't. Oh yeah. No, no. Sony was first formed, uh, it, and I apologize for not knowing the names of both of the gentlemen that did it, I've not committed that to memory, but the two men that formed it were during the war were actually, they repaired, they were in, in communications for the Japanese army. And when it was over, they set up a, when the war was over, they were doing radio repair. They were just repairing radios in Japan. And they got together finally and created Sony. And when they created Sony, one of them <laughs> it was had a spiritual angle to his life. The other one 
was very mechanical and engineer-like, both engineers, but one, two different kind of sides of the same personality. And they established within Sony a paranormal research cell, organization, group, you know, whatever it is. And it was headed by a person and David Hughes, who's a good friend of mine, who used to be vice president of Sony Music, said that when he started at Sony, that he was made aware of this and that there would be announcements up on staff bulletin boards that would say, hey, do you think that you can, you know, bend a spoon or do you think that you can move something inside of a vacuum? Do you think you, that kind of stuff. And then if you can, or think you can report to room, whatever it was for further testing. And so people would go in claiming it could do certain things. And then of course they would put them to the test and go, no, you can't next. And they would do, they would do that. And then they finally had a team of people that were in there doing the things that that they wanted them to focus on. I asked David if what they were really involved in was exploring future technology or were they using it as a corporate espionage tool? I mean, I guess it could have been both, but I, you know, David said that he had never asked that question or, you know, inquired about that, but that, yeah, you know, why not? If you're, Sony and you're in a competitive environment of technology, if you could pull people together who could focus on the future and try to, or try to identify technologies that don't exist right now, why would that be wrong? I think that would be very brilliant and innovative and exploratory to try to do something like that. I, I think if you look at back on that, it, it's probably not too far from how Steve Jobs was, you know, managing to create the technology that they dreamt up and created at Apple. Somebody somewhere has to close their eyes and imagine the possibility of that. So where does that come from? Where does that signal line, as we say within the lexicon of a remote viewer, where does it come from? It's not just within you know, the neural and glial link cell link ups in your brain that it just materializes, it has to come from somewhere. And that's where you go to somebody like a Buck Charlson, you know, president of Life Sciences Foundation. I think I told this story to your listeners before, which is that he told me one time, he's now long gone, but he told me one time when I visited him there and he wanted me to teach him remote viewing, but he was far too aged to do it. And only because I just, that it's, he wanted to see if I could validate or confirm what he was doing. And essentially he distilled it down very carefully by just saying, or simply by saying everything I've ever created, I've imagined or dreamt in a dream state, right? Mm -hmm. I will, I will follow, you know, go into a trance state, sitting at my table, looking out over an orchard with a cup of tea. And the next thing I know, the cup of tea is ice cold. You know, and, and I'll, I've, I've made sketches on it. And then what I do is I complete those sketches. And when I do that, that's where this came to me. The, and he had, I think, somewhere in the neighborhood of 32 patents, which are extraordinarily very valuable, like on hydraulic systems for undercarriages of aircraft and engines for, for 
freighters and other kinds of things that he dreamt up that during his time were very profitable and powerful for him. But he dreamt them. He, he, they, the images always came to him in this altered state of consciousness to use, you know, probably in a more, more appropriate term. Same mm -hmm. thing with Ely Calloway and the Calloway Golf Club. I, you know, it came to me. It came to me and it was not my engineering head that caused me to stand in front of a blank piece of paper and create it. It came to me with my eyes closed and I got up and I captured the idea, the essence of it. And then, you know, the engineering teams all got together to say, okay, how do we make this? How do we make this that you've dreamt up? So I think that that's probably not unusual within the human condition to be doing that across the board which is envisioning things. So in other words, detecting, decoding, and objectifying it in the lexicon of a remote viewer. So the idea of intentionally searching outward within the universe to find a technology and to bring it back, albeit conceptually, and albeit without proof of its reality, is there something wrong with that? No, not in my opinion. I think it's, uh, I think it's a... A productive practice because it's how it starts on any level. So going outward deeper to, to pick up the, the signal line, the waveform expression of something out there to deck code objectify it and bring it back, sketch it, model it, talk about it, that may start things flowing in different directions. In a remote viewing class, we're just toying with it. I mean, we're mm -hmm. seeing what it can be, not you know, not trying to market or develop or do something with it. It's just for our, everybody's edification. Anyway, any other questions about that? No, let's, let's continue. Sorry to, sorry so, to derail you a little bit. I assist you no, raise the black no, hole. Right. Curiosity sometimes. All right. So this next piece is, I'm going to just jump through really quickly. Uh, you can read it there, but as I talk, <laughs> if the universe started from some point, and if it's expanding outward, then there have been individuals that deal with the mathematical topo topography of things, of the universe, and they've actually attempted over the years to establish what this known universe might look like. And again, remember, most of us grew up being told that the universe was infinite. And now where we are is it, it's, it may be infinite, but it's probably not infinite not if it's you know not if it's expanding outward it, and we can reverse engineer it back to a start point then it can't be infinite and it never just existed forever it was it was created it came from some place it's expanding into some place for me that's more intriguing than somebody just telling me that the universe itself is infinite knowing that it's finite means that it has to be in something right? It can't be finite in and of itself. It has to be finite in something. So what's it in and what's it look like? Is it just a big sphere? Well, in fact, it could be, it could be a big sphere. It could also be one of the other mathematical models that have come up is it's shaped like a saddle. And then the other, the other concept is that it's flat. And if you want to see how they try to calculate this to understand it better. One of the things that they do is they start with a square 
And if you can think of it as two-dimensional square, and then that two-dimensional square can be wrapped around itself, now you have a three-dimensional cylinder. And if you take that cylinder now and pull it around end to end, then you create this thing called a torus. And this torus, three-dimensional torus, is what they're talking about. How they're, this is another one of the strange models of how they try to figure out the topography of what the universe might be like. This is not important for you to, to grasp. It's just, if you really are hungry for this, you can find more of it than you can find an entire week's worth of stuff to sit and watch about this. I'm just trying to let you know that the, that's where this kind of stuff came from is this kind of stuff, how they started measuring and looking at it. And if it goes into something like this, you're talking about now, if, if you can take this bug and see this bug move, how it would then move the same way on the cylinder, right? You'd be able, it would be moving around the back of the cylinder. Mm -hmm. If it were on the torus, it would be moving underneath the torus and maybe looping back up again. So it lends all sorts of strange concepts about how that's going to actually look. And this is one of the models that they apply the universe to. Yeah. So, and this is another uh, look of it right here. <clears throat> so for remote viewers, the shape is conceptual. It's not literal. I just wanted you to know that cosmology is attempting to define shapes for it. And uh, they're attempting to do it mathematically and they have proofs that support those theories. And I also want everybody to know that they're attempting very carefully to try to calculate. It was one of the things Stephen Hawking spent the last years of his life doing, trying to reverse engineer the universe, basically, to bring it back to a point of singularity. And there were things in the variables, there were variables rather in the equations that he refused to let go of that his, that his staff were adamant about they needed to be removed. one of those was time he was putting it down as a as a fixed variable you know within the equation and it was actually jamming up the equation it wouldn't let it go all the way back as far as it needed to go so i don't i don't think they ever solved it completely because of that okay so <clears throat> the concept is or the shape is conceptual it's not literal we don't care what what they do is we have to figure out a way, let's take the, the universe as a sphere, because remember I said that's one of the potential shapes of it. It's easier to visualize this if we do that. What they have to do is they have to figure out a way to cube up, divide up, section up the, the conceptual known universe. Now, since we actually don't know how far it is, well, we speculate how far it is to the, to the edge, to the edge of the known universe, we can, we can speculate how many light years that is away, but we don't know really what that would mean in, just in terms of volume because we don't know the shape or anything else. So let's just assume it's a sphere to go from there conceptually to work with it for an mm -hmm. open search outward target. The next thing we'd have to do is develop a Cartesian grid system, and that's what we would do. So if you took that Cartesian grid system conceptually around that shape, you could then conceptually divide that up to be X8, Y3, Zulu 5. That would be that one square there. Each of those other squares there would, or cubes would have what? They would have 
different coordinates assigned to them. So you could pick one, and then the next thing that would happen is that one could be blown up conceptually, and then it could be divided up further. So each time it gets divided up, you're doing what? You're narrowing in, narrowing in, narrowing in. So it all depends on what the planned concept of that target is. You could do this 10 times and conceptually, not literally, conceptually have narrowed the target space down considerably. So when that target space is actually finalized, let's say that's done 10 times, the final coordinate that you would get is the one that gets to be assigned. So it is, it all begins with this concept of the target and a Cartesian coordinate relating to that space within the known universe. So the next thing that happens is you'd end up something like this. You'd end up with the viewers are given a blind target. They don't know if it's off planet or anything else. They're given a blind target. And the coordinates may be X43, Y62, Z, or Zulu 71. And the target concept is simply something should be perceivable. And so that's how that works. The, the, instead of get, being given two sets of four numbers, they may be given that. You could also take that, those coordinates and make that the concept of the target. And then you could assign two sets of four numbers to it, which would, that would never, that would never throw off a coordinate remote viewer or an extended remote viewer. You would just give them those coordinates and what's linked there is the concept. It's always the concept. I know that if people are looking for some mechanical, you know, link between all of this, there isn't one. The link to, you know, finding this particular waveform expression of within a holographic matrix field is the concept of the target in the mind of the individual assigning the coordinates to that target. The concept of that target in the mind of that individual. So that individual is thinking X43, Y62, Zulu 71, and then assigns 20220101. That still becomes an established conceptual link from one to the next to the next. And that's how that works. It doesn't have to be anything different than that. The big rate limiter in that whole thing is whether or not the individual assigning the coordinates can actually hold the concept of the target in their head long enough to assign the coordinates. I know it sounds ridiculous, but I've had people, you know, that work for me in, in, in remote viewing classes who were incapable of doing that. And because they were incapable of doing that, viewers had bad sessions. So it's always about the strength of the individual assigning that coordinate. That's the reason why in the unit, there were specific, only specific people allowed to do that because they were knowledgeable, trained, experienced, and they knew what to do. Not everybody could do it because some people, although they might be a good remote viewer, they didn't, they lacked the concentration skills to actually assign and link, you know, the concept of the target to a coordinate that was assigned. Anytime that happens, there's a weak kind of a distracted, you know, session scatter that comes from multiple viewers and you know, people just don't do as well as they do if it's really well established as a concept of a target okay 
So this is so this is the moderator who has to hold the concept of the target in their head. Not the moderator. The individual in the unit. The individual who would assign the coordinates was the program manager. And, and how long did they have to hold the concept in their head? Just when they assigned it, or yeah, long enough to assign the numbers. I mean, you've got to have. Uh, and that's a difficult thing to do. Like if you ask somebody to hold the color orange in their head, usually, you know, they're trying to picture it, but it starts to morph. It changes, right? It fades away. It disappears. They're trying to hold it right up here in their, you know, with their eyes closed and it's going here and going there. It's not an easy thing to do. It takes practice to be capable of doing it. Now in classes with me, it's, it, it's anybody that I've, trained that's gone through all levels of it like patty or jay or other people that have been that have worked with me over the years they're really good at doing that but not everybody is once upon a time i i had left the the classroom for some reason and then they picked you know those two patty and jay couldn't be there and so somebody else was picked to do it and then the person that assigned the coordinates was not really was not trained to do it and it, it was an it was an emo extended remote viewing class, and the class did atrociously. I mean, it, like it was missed, I mean, just everywhere. And then it was like I asked who you know who assigned these coordinates, and everybody pointed. And the poor guy, you know, he was not the guy that was trained to do that. He should have never been asked to do that. So we backed up, regrouped, without giving any feedback reassigned the coordinates again different you know different coordinates now same target by somebody who knew how to do it and the class worked the target again and then they did what they needed to do you know they performed at the level i would have expected that they should perform so i, I just it was a mistake and it was something we learned you know never to do again uh, in that Does now that when these yeah it does and when these coordinates were given and you know, to the, like the X-ray 43, Yankee 62, Zulu 71, when they were initially given, these are different than the standard two sets of four digit numbers. Was, was there any front loading involved? Like, did people know that they were going to be doing off planet targets? Yeah. I, my explanation confused you. I'm meaning it probably, then it confused your listeners as well. You could do two things. You could use those coordinates. Mm -hmm. uh, you are correct. Those coordinates would trigger viewers to say, that's unusual. So this must be off planet or something. Right. Because they understand that system, some of them. Or you could take those coordinates, X, as I said, X43, Y62, Zulu 71, and you could hold that concept, those coordinates, that quadrant, something should be perceivable, hold that in your head and assign two sets of four numbers. Yeah. That's what I would do because Cartesian coordinates were removed from the process at SRI. And I don't know how depth, how in depth they ever got trying to use them, but, or if they just said they're not usable, but I know that in, when they were using latitude and longitude, I, that was one of the hits they took from the auditors that looked right. at the search and said, you're, you're front-loaded people. There, there yeah. are people here that if you keep giving them lat, lat longs around here, around Stanford, they're going to figure this out. I mean, if they haven't already. So when they start describing 
you know, red mediagua tiles and, you know, pine trees, <laughs> that kind of stuff. And, and Spanish architecture, there's, you're, you, you can't do that. You can't do that kind of stuff. So that's, I don't know how well they ever migrated away from that at SRI. But I know that in the unit, we never used grid mercator. We never used lat long. And the only Cartesian application was for this, was for like open search outward to try to partition, not partition off, but to try to dice up the known universe conceptually and to pull out a single block of it conceptually and then assign two sets of four coordinates, two sets of four numbers to that coordinate to X43, Y62, Yank, or Zulu 71. And doing that locked that court set of coordinates to that concept, the Cartesian and that target, and something should be perceivable. Because remember, we're just going after a piece of real estate, basically, right? Going after a piece of space undetermined size and then saying that if we send eight people or in my cases in remote viewing classes send 58 people out to look at something in this open search outward something should be perceivable so what we're looking for is how many of 58 viewers come back with correlating data parallel data in the back in the unit sending out eight at different times or four at different times, what they're again looking for is correlating data there. And we'll talk about that here. So this open search outward, the viewers would then just do the work either as coordinate remote viewing or as extended remote viewing, their choice, however they wanted to do that. And they produce their session summaries and their sketches. They have to finish that session work 90 minutes they come out of there 30 minutes to do a session summary, more if they need it, referencing all their sketches, pulling the whole, you know, and they're pulling together the whole story of anecdote, of anecdotal evidence of what they did, what they perceived out there. They're putting in all of the data that came and all of the categories of data in which they were, you know, that we asked them to look for within the structure of coordinate or extended remote viewing. And they pull that together. And then the program manager, or in my classes, it's all the small group leaders, <laughs> take the people and their small group and look at all their sessions. And they start pulling together correlating data and parallel data from different people. They pull it all together. And the viewers then get their sessions back and then they will sit in a small group and in training and they will, each one will go through the group there's never more than 10 in a small group. So if it's 58 people, there's six small groups and small group leaders to go with them. And what happens is they, they brief. They each one briefs. This is, these were my perceptions of this particular target. This is what I saw. This is the life form that I saw. These are this that I saw. This, this, this. Some of them get nothing. I mean, they because why? The concept of the target is an open search outward, a shotgun blast figuratively into that particular quadrant of open space. And so something should be perceivable. Yeah. It doesn't mean that every viewer, because the person assigning those coordinates has no concept of 
a particular location within that space. It's just an open search outward. Something should be perceivable. Something. They should stumble upon something. Now the question is, out of 58, how many stumbled upon something similar or identical, right? And then back in the remote viewing unit, same case, just smaller, smaller scale. How many stumbled upon something identical or similar? And then that's when this data is analyzed, this correlating data is captured, put together in like a single sheet, or I mean, I mean a single summary where all it's highlighting all of the correlated data, provide, you know, linking sketches. These viewers saw this and that and that and this. And then what happens to this is when it's all done back in the unit, I realize, just bear with me, I'm skipping between unit and classes in training with me. Back in the unit, it then becomes a decision. Is this new data? And if it is, if we've got new data, new, new descriptors by four viewers, four out of six, let's say, or five out of six, it correlates, but it doesn't match any other, it doesn't match any other data that was produced in other sessions that were part of the historical file. So if it's new, considered new data, then they create a new historical target folder and that, that all those sessions go in there. And that folder now goes in the file, in the file safe. And it's there with, the, with that same X, the Cartesian coordinate, the same concept of that target, and the eight, you know the eight digits that were eight digit coordinate was assigned to it by whoever created or sent the viewers after that target, the program manager. If it's data that correlates with other data that's been produced on similar, you know, open search inwards into that particular location, into that particular piece of real estate, that's added now as a separate series of sessions, but they go into a historical an existing historical target folder. And that's how the record were kept, was kept there. And so out of curiosity, you know, for the experience of it, would they go back periodically? Would somebody pull it out in training or would they do it as, uh, you know, you just got done working some operational target that was really taxing. So for the next three days, how about we do something like that? You know, it's kind of a respite from the, you know, the dirty work that you had to normally do. That was, it's like training. It's like training, right? You're sure. It's just, it's training with a caveat that you have no, you have only historical correlating feedback. You have no absolute feedback. And that always, that was not always made clear, but I always make that clear. I don't take that stuff as absolute or real. I take it because it, it can't be verified. It can only be yeah, compared be against correlating data, right? It's just cool to talk about. And and when you talk about it, everybody wants to know more. I mean, why? Because it, it 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 sounds cool, but in truth, and I never over exaggerated it. It is it is still the interpretations of a human brain of things that they are perceiving for which they have nothing in their experience Rolodex to relate it to. We exist in a four-dimensional world. So we now go into this eight-dimensional world of hyperspace and we 
we detect, decode, and objectify waveform expressions of things contained within a holographic matrix field. And we interpret from that what we perceive. Everything is distilled through, in, through our conscious mind, where it relates it to what we know from this world and in our experience Rolodex. So there are many things that are perceived there that we have absolutely no reference for. And viewers will say this. I mean, I didn't, I didn't know what to call it. I didn't know, you know, it's kind of like, if you remember the movie contact when uh, Jodie Foster sits there and looks out over this galaxy that, that she's seeing and she, her, she did it. She acted it perfectly. And she looked there with this amazement, this awestruck amazement and said, they should have sent a poet because that was a perfect way of phrasing the fact that as a scientist, she had absolutely no way to relate back what she was seeing in accurate detail. And it's the same thing with remote viewers. They struggle in that because we only have a lexicon that applies to this world. So coming back with other things is it's, it's interesting. It's interesting to see what comes back and see what mostly you have to watch their faces as they're describing what they experience because their faces and their hands, because their body postures and the glow in their face is the thing, or sometimes not the glow. Sometimes it's the opposite based on their experience. Those that says more often than what you can see in their sessions, because they're all limited by their command of language and their ability in their Rolodex, what they've experienced in life to take what they're perceiving and to decode it into a four-dimensional lexicon. And that's always the interpretation that is necessary in this that we have to embrace and understand. But so what have we seen over the decades? Well, <clears throat> we've seen civilizations. And by that, I mean, and we've seen craft and vehicles. I mean, we've seen cities, dwellings, landscapes, vegetation, <clears throat> flora, fauna, flora and fauna. We've seen all of these things. Again, what we're perceiving, we're perceiving through, through non-physical eyes by detecting, decoding this waveform, but we're pushing it through a decoding through a conscious biological brain, which is looking for references. And often what it does is because it has, it sees things that it can't relate to this world. It finds the next best thing from its experience and goes, maybe this, <laughs> and it throws that at you. We have seen crafts so of all kinds, large, small transport, you know, exploratory, fighter, you name it, you know, combat craft, all those things have been seen and they've been sketched. And again, are they proof of anything? Absolutely not. But what are they really amazing for people to experience? People that are doing it in these groups in like in an extent, you know, in, a, in an advanced class, uh, you know, there have sometimes been over a hundred students, sometimes more than that, way, way more than that. And it's amazing to see that many people, you know, engaged in something like this and coming back and then speaking about it with an understanding of kind of humility and reason and not being willing to just stand up beat chest and say, oh, guess what I 
you know, what I did. It's, it's one thing to share the story of something like that, but you have to share it with a degree of humility and understanding and, and clear statement of the fact that you have no proof of what you just experienced. You can say, well, look what I did in coordinate remote viewing, or look what I've done in extended remote viewing for targets that have feedback. Look, look at the level that I'm doing. Never 100%, but look what I'm doing. So if, let's say, if 50% of what I'm producing as a coordinate or extended remote viewer and targets with feedback is accurate data, then can I assume, at least on some level, mathematically, statistically speaking, that what I am perceiving in this off-planet search, this open search outward, that maybe 50% of that would be accurate as well? Yeah, I think that's a fair, a fair application. If you're tracking at a certain level of accuracy or on the climb, that yeah, you can assume certain aspects of that. Let's say that you're only... You, you take not the 50% where you were performing and you just simply say, all right, I'm going to cut that in half. 25% of what I perceived out there in this session is, is probably spot on based on my you know, downgraded statistical evaluations of myself in targets with feedback. Is that allowable? Hell, I mean, heck yeah, it's allowable, right? That It should be allowable in that respect. Again, with a caveat that there's no way to prove it. But inside themselves, they know this, you know, they start to go like, I just saw another civilization and probably 25 to 50% using my figures that I gave right here is accurate. How fantastic is that, right? I mean, it's, it's pretty amazing really over that, right? When, when they're remote viewing these civilizations, what scale of development or level of development have they perceived like, like across the whole range? Or are they generally more advanced civilizations? All of the above. I mean, typically the civilizations that remote viewers, civilian remote viewers stumble upon are the ones that are powerful energetically and therefore kind of become an attractant. They intensify the signal line theoretically. And by intensifying the signal line, it's a stronger, it's a stronger waveform, higher amplitude, uh, higher frequency. And that becomes something that when you say the concept of the target is something should be perceivable, that's generally the kind of thing that they just, you know, there's a, there is a, an entrainment, right. In an open search outward that when something is significant and should be perceivable, they entrain to that and then therefore lock onto it and start detecting and decoding data from that. Have there been descriptions of uh, more primitive, maybe more primitive than us? There have been, uh, because even like, as I put down here, other life forms, you know, there are some that look like us. There's some not like us, nothing like us, some that are perhaps microscopic, and you have to remember that scale is extraordinarily difficult in working something like this. Why? Mm -hmm. Because you're detecting, decoding, and objectifying the waveform expressions of something from a world that you, you don't know on what scale you're, you're viewing it because you have nothing to relate to. Viewers, you know, opening the aperture of perception into a target in the four-dimensional world 
have immediate references to scale, right? Unless they're, you know, the, unless the concept of the target is like the God particle or the, you know, go to Fermi labs or to a particle accelerator to, to do right. something else like that, that then they can get confused about scale again. But putting them on the Eiffel Tower, there's an immediate reference to scale. And typically. So just for the audience, I'm just making this up, but you might see a civilization that looks human, but if you were to have some level of scale, it could, they could turn out to be a a civilization of giants or a civilization of Lilliputians, right? You would just have no way to verify. Exactly. And if you're describing something that doesn't look human, then how do we know on what scale we're perceiving and we don't? So we just, again, have to accept that as part of the reality of doing this. We don't, we have no concept of so many of the things that we see there. Now we're talking because I'm, I'm assuming that the focus primarily was, you know, alien civilizations and vehicles and life forms and stuff like that. And I already talked to you about the idea of technology, those kinds of things, these kind of tangible things that you can tack onto and and start to detect and decode and try to find references for in four-dimensional language. Now you you made a suggestion that when civilians did this, they would typically be drawn to more energetic civilizations. And I think the implication there was more advanced. But you deliberately chose to say when civilians do this. What about military personnel? Is there a difference or did they, are they sent or are they attracted to slightly, you know, on average, right? That's a good question. I, I think that, that the, the, va- look, I think the vast majority of what military people looking through a military mental lens as remote viewers detecting and decoding, they can see whatever the concept of the target is, but, if you're doing an open search outward, I think that warriors are going to have a tendency to find warriors. That may not always be the case. Certainly it wasn't looking at the historical files, but there was certainly a lot of descriptions of warcraft and of, of weaponry and uh, leadership hierarchy, those kinds of things, of intensity, of emotion or focus as they perceived it, those kinds of things. I, I, I just think that that's one of the, that's again, just a part of the human condition. We have a tendency to detect, decode, and objectify through the lens through which we live our life. If that is our profession and that's what we're doing, then I, I think that that has a tendency to color what we're perceiving. And, but again, that's not an absolute. There are always variations to that. And there were also civilians that were in the unit that were not you know, warrior-like. They were completely the opposite of that. So there would have been always different balances and variations in, in all of that stuff. But I, I just, for me, I, the key thing here for folks that are listening to this is that we don't have a way to, to balance scale immediately unless there's something there. I mean, you could perceive a civilization, a city, and you, you still don't know if it's, the size of, if you're looking at something that you can equate to Manhattan, you have, you just don't have the references for it. You don't know if those structures are that size. You're just 
perceiving it and then de decoding it, objectifying it on a piece of paper and saying, this is what I perceive. And that's okay, as long as you don't go past that with it. And we try never to do that. What about intent in terms yeah. of these civilizations? There we go. Oh, there. Well, that <laughs> was weird. <laughs> Not really. Uh, for me, this was always the biggest eye-opener. It's one of the reasons why I don't react to the whole UFO thing the way many people do. And almost every case, and I have put thousands and thousands and thousands of remote viewing students into these open search outwards and into historical targets. And in every case, you know, there are questions that they are asked. And one is, if they come back and say, I perceive this life form and it looked like this and this and this. And the question that would be asked by a small group leader is, were you acknowledged? Were, were they aware of your presence? And probably eight times out of 10, students will say, yes, yeah, there, there was an awareness of my presence. And then the question follow-up would be, was there an interaction between you and the life form that you're perceiving? And probably eight times out of 10, so 100% and those, they come back and go, no, there was no interaction. I was acknowledged, but I was not interacted with. Could you interact? Did you try to interact back? Yeah, but it, I was pretty much ignored. So what does that mean? Well, I don't know. <laughs> I, I think what it means is it's it probably to link back to what you and I were talking about earlier is there's a reason why you know, alien spacecraft have just not dropped down into, you know, the Red Square or not dropped down into the White House lawn and stepped out and and said, hey, let's talk. There's There has to be a reason. What that reason is, I don't know. I don't know if we're a Petri dish experiment on this planet. I don't know if we're, I don't know, as I said to you, whether this is like some Star Trek, you know, uh, what was that called? The prime directive. Prime directive. Thank you. Prime directive that advanced civilizations can't interfere with other civilizations. I don't know. I hate to make that reference because I was never a Star Trek fan, but it's, uh, yeah, you know, I, I don't know why it is, but it's interesting that throughout the years, throughout the decades of doing this with remote viewing students and in back in the unit that nobody ever interacted with. I know that that was one of the things that Ed Dames, I once watched Ed Dames back when he was still Ed Dames and not Dr. Doom. I once watched him many times just weep because he, he just wanted to be the person to make contact because he, he had gone through this whole in his mind and in his heart, this purification, edification you know, process, training process, you know, of pushing and pushing and pushing that he felt that he should be that person that he was, you know, most connected with most understanding with. I, and I would not have disputed that. I would not because I know how he lived his life. And so, yeah. And yet that never happened much to his disappointment and much to his heartbreak. It never happened. And 
we got oh so close at places like Chaco and other places, but it never happened. So I don't get my, you know, underwear in a wad because I, you know, am worried about why some craft is not landing or why the government's not, you know, being forthcoming with what they know, because I, I think what secretly motivates these, that argument, it kind of falls into a two prong. Maybe there's a third, but for me, it's two prong. One is a defiance that you can't withhold information from me. And the truth is sure they can. Mm -hmm. Yeah, of course they can. And then the other is the second prong is there are, they have to help us save our planet and save humanity. And the answer to that is no, they don't. No, they really don't. And if you were the creator of worlds and if you put, you know, a species on a particular planet and said, you have the free agency to choose, you know, how you're going to, how you're going to live and, and function on this planet with each other. And humanity has misused that free agency, you know, in the way that they have. What makes you think that somebody's supposed to come in here and be a ringleader and to turn it all around for us? They're not. I mean, that to me would, uh, would negate the whole human experience of why whatever created us put us here, right? We're supposed to be here to excel and to be you know, to learn to be prosperous, productive, kind, you know, all those things, not to see whose ass we can kick constantly. What, you know, what level of greed we can amount, arise to this week. I mean, it's just, it, it's just nuts to think that that is why they're here or why they're around. You know, we've talked before that, am I, do I think that there could be you know, I think abductions are, abductions are real. Yeah, of course I do. I mean, I don't think all of them are real. I think some of the people who claim them are mentally ill, but I, I also, or, or just they're attention seekers. They want some significance and that allows that to happen for them. But I, I don't think that's true of everybody. I think that there are probably some people who have had a really very horrific experience being, you know, pulled up out of their life and examined for lack of, you know, lack of a better term that i mean why is that so hard for us to understand if there was a civilization or a species capable of that kind of you know interstellar interplanetary travel what why would we not think that that would be possible we do it every day with the different species that exist on our planet every day we do that we pull them up out of water or we do something else with them and you know we we test and we kill cut measured you know all different things so why would we think it wouldn't exist elsewhere in the universe especially if something had the ability to get here i mean based on some of the things we're seeing i mean we're barely out of the livestock yard you know right. It's a right. Right? right so hard to complain about what's happened there for us but you know that's that's how you know you would do an open search outward now, there are other types of targets, like if you have a known, as we discussed in the first couple of slides, if you have a known point of exploration, but even if you did something like M74, you'd still want to dice it up like this, right? Because you don't want to just go conceptual in M74, because what's the spread factor 
you know, energetically of 58 people, if, if you shotgun them into that place, you could get people going to, you know, bumping into a bunch of different things that they're attracted to from a waveform perspective. But that's how that works. I mean, that's, that's it for an open search outward. Now, regarding intent, did folks ever run into any hostile or what they yeah. would describe as hostile civilizations? Yeah. Malevolent. Yeah, they, they have. Yes. And they come back with creepy feelings and, and creepy sensations. And the point we, you know, what the teaching point for that is, okay, so what you sensed was unnerving, unusual, and dark and foreboding. Now you have to understand that you have no right and you have no reason to drag that emotion back out of that session with yourself. You have to objectify that and then get away with, do away with it, get, you know, get rid of it. Can't walk around carrying that. And some viewers hear that and do it as they're instructed and others, you know, it affects them for several days, maybe longer, but yeah, you're going blind into something. And suddenly as your aperture of awareness opens, you're in a place that is not a place where you would like to be. But that's the nature of an open search outward. You're going to run into whatever you're going to run into. Now, when you say malevolent, is that just the viewer's perception or is, is there ways to objectify, like they're objectively malevolent? Well, it, yeah, there are, there are certain, you know, it, it clearly it is always the interpretation of the viewer, but there are things that a viewer perceives as weaponry or the viewer just perceives this dark foreboding energy in the place, or maybe dark malevolent entity that's in the place. And when I say entity, like a life form at that, in that place, I mean, the reason, one of the reasons I like the open search outward for remote viewers is because it helps them get this understanding that even in the universe, that there is, there's good and evil. And that there is that balance. There's good, evil, and everything in between. And that that balance exists even in the universe, not only here, but out there. And so there are, there are kind of rules that you're taught that you have to live by in that. And one is you don't engage that stuff. You recognize that nothing out there is more powerful than you. As you are perceiving and as you are being perceived, you're a waveform expression of something, right? You're, you're tapping into a waveform expression of this within a holographic matrix field. So what you perceive is you're perceiving it back through a four-dimensional physical Rolodex that you have from this world. And so the, the skin you apply to it is an interpretation. The size is an interpretation. The waveform expression, how you are perceiving it, that is accurate, but how you decode it as a human being, that's where things get twisted and turned and other things go along with it. So the only way to control that for a viewer is to make sure that they fully understand that it's not your, your job to bring darkness back with you, right? If you want to come back laughing, so be it, do it and share it with everybody, but don't come back here, you know, crying and then go, oh, woe is me kind of a thing. Not your job. Your job is to detect, decode, and objectify. Your job is to remember what you perceive and then to objectify it and, and be rational 
scientific as a remote viewer and not emotional. Nothing out there can overpower you. Nothing out there can do that unless you let it. If you let it or if you welcome it or if you engage where you're not clearly supposed to engage and every viewer that's ever had that experience has said to me, I knew I shouldn't have done that, but I engaged. So does that exist out there? Yes. Can you prove it? Of course not. But all you can go by is what a viewer comes back and says, and that has to be good enough in that circumstance. But can you give an example of when somebody, you know, something somebody did where they said, I know I shouldn't have engaged, but I engaged just very high level without giving away where well, to share what for. happened to me. And, and one of my sessions was that I found myself standing in a, again, now this is human interpretation, right? So I'm standing in a field of grass, maybe eight, 10 inches tall. And I can see sort of a pale blue sky and it's kind of a curved landscape like this, like the horizon is there and I'm standing here and over in front of me, I can see a circle of individuals of life forms that are all covered in black, like, like black, I want to say black robes is because this was, this happened back in the eighties. And I, I was beckoned to come over there, but I knew and I knew I should not, you know, turn my attention, my focus and go there, but I was beckoned to that. And so I acquiesced and went, I surrendered to that and went there. And that's not my job. My job was to, to detect a code and objectify what I was seeing. My job was not to interact with something, especially when I felt like I should not be interacting with something. And so in my mind, as I'm detecting and decoding this waveform expression, I, I go to that gathering. And as soon as I get to that gathering, I'm like sucked into the middle of this gathering. And then I find myself being held upside down. So again, these are all my mind's interpretations of the waveform, right. what's happening. But it was a sense of helplessness. It was a sense of, of feeling uh, defeated, being... You know, one of those things you have where you just go, man, I screwed that up. That was stupid. It was all of that that happened. And I remember that I was in, it was an extended remote viewing session. And I know that when I came out of it, I came out of it like screaming, like fighting to get loose from this, but I couldn't. And there was like this kind of laughing at, the, at me because I was being held upside down like that. Yeah, that was a weird one. And I, when I came out of it, I was shaken and Mel Riley and I talked about that a bit. And it was, you have to remember, you know, that's not your job to interact with things, with life forms there. Not unless they make that your job. And that was not the job. My job was to detect a code and report what I was perceiving. And that can happen to a viewer if you allow that to happen. If you do what I said, just did and say, and I'm saying to you, don't do that. You don't interact. You sometimes, I mean, maybe a viewer would dispute that and say, well, I interact all the time. Okay. Your call, you're a big yeah, boy. You're rolling the dice, right? You're rolling the dice. Yeah. Big boy, big girl, big girl, you know, get rules. You do what you want to do, but uncle Dave is going to say to you, 
be careful what you're playing with out there because it's a realm that you know nothing about. You know, that's a world, a realm, a dimension, you know, a part of the universe that you don't know anything about. And you might be considered, you know, not supposed to be here. And there are other parts that would be completely enlightening and bright and, you know, and, and benevolent and, you know, good experiences. But reviewers have run into both. I think more good than bad, because viewers are going out, particularly civilian viewers are going out with an intention of trying to have a good experience, right? That's their impassioned intention is to do that, not to stumble upon something dark and ugly. But some have stumbled on things dark and ugly. I think it all becomes part of sort of the intention realized or otherwise that viewers might go after, you know, go out there with, but nothing is more powerful than you unless you surrender to it. And you have no reason or right to bring something negative back out of the session with you. If you follow any, those simple rules, you're not going to have any problem with it. Any weird instances of biolocation when doing these things? <clears throat> Not that I can recall, but certainly it could happen. Remember, a bilocation is just a physiological manifestation, right. right? Right. So it's just, it's the brain is interpreting a particular pattern of waveform that it relates back to something in your experience, Rolodex, like fear, you know, heat, exhaustion, right. ape, you know, whatever the case might be. And it manifests the same physiological indicators in the body that took place when that, when that imprint happened. So if you start perceiving similar waveform out there, it's not unusual for the biological brain to just turn around and go, Oh, I recognize that last time that happened, this is what happened. And so it starts, you know, sending out the uh, protective signals. It's trying to get you to recognize early on what it thinks is taking place. So you'll stop doing whatever you're doing. So I don't know of any that have ever happened in off-planet sessions, but it can certainly happen. I'll, I will, I don't want to tell you that. I was going to say, there are some <laughs> things I will tell you, I was going to tell you, but I would have given away targets if I started talking yeah. about that. And I don't want to do that. So what about morphology, like mm -hmm. different body types, shapes, and things like that? So humans are obviously have that star shape. Is that more common than not or is it just run the? i'm assuming it runs the gamut but yeah it runs the gamut i i i mean there are a few targets that are kind of very very consistent but here's what i'll tell you is nobody ever describes grays nobody does that huh. yeah, i find that intriguing nobody ever describes it they always come back with something far different than that and there's there are only a couple of humanoid you know, historical targets, the rest are different. And some of them defy description, but it's fascinating to listen to remote viewing students attempt to, you know, to describe them, but nobody ever comes back and draws a little gray man with big dark eyes. That's not happened. And that's like, oh. it has to be 25,000 students at this point more. It's just, We've trained on a very large scale for many years and then stopped, but, you know, <clears throat> yeah, that's a lot of people. What, what about, you know, you're sending people in space, but are you also sending them in time? So in other words, if they perceive something 
do they have any sense of time i.e like is it something that's concurrent with our where we are or is it something that could have happened 70 million years ago or 70 million years in the future excellent question and no way to determine that in an accurate answer but i will say this that in many of the historical targets the concepts of the targets are the same thing that other viewers perceive so in order to kind of establish the correlation and the, val the validation based on correlation is you're sending viewers back to a target that was discovered decades ago as an open search outward. And they're experiencing the same thing that every class, every viewer that was asked to perceive that target perceives. So that's a, that's a target backward in time to a particular moment backward in time to relive and experience that exact same moment over and over and over again every time we send them to it. Others in open search outward become new points of interest. Then they're, they're being perceived the moment they're discovered in real time. I mean, whatever time that might be. Since we have nothing but a conceptual idea of the location or you know where we're looking, remember we're taking a sphere and cubing it up. 10 times, mm -hmm. right? So X, Y, Z, then pull a block out, X, Y, Z, that, pull another block out of that, X, Y, Z, that, another block out of that. That narrows it down, but that could still be, that could still be, you know, thousands of light years across. It really could, right? So, yeah, I don't know. We have no way to measure the time there. And so I just adopt in my explanation of students that, you know, from a quantum mechanical perspective, time is an illusion doesn't exist mm -hmm. so it's a construct of humanity so just leave it alone don't worry about you know that kind of thing just tell us what you see tell us what you perceive now when they find these older targets and kind of are you saying they report the same like incident like if i'm just making this up but that there was yeah. like some big political meeting or something like that that was significant they would just see the same th the same or report the same incident yeah let's just say an alien life form standing in front of something that allows them to draw to drive a drive a craft of immense proportion and that there are other people working or other life forms i should say working to assist in the driving of this craft but there is one in charge and that is clear and the one in charge is the one that recognizes that they are present in that moment in time backward in time does that sound really weird of course it does <laughs> unless you're unless you're understanding you know what we're actually talking about of course it sounds really bizarre way out there but i assure you it's not it's just anything that has become part of a collective moment remains it's a potential within a collective moment can that become a concept of a target yeah it's a holographic matrix field it's omnipotent omniscient omnipresent right it's eternal in its concept and so yes of course you can so that becomes a concept of the target and then people come back to, you know you send new viewers after that same target in the blind remember just two sets of four numbers and they come back and they start describing the same being the same craft, the same, uh, all of the other attributes that I just discussed in very brief detail. It's amazing to see. Now, they can also be sent to things that are, that are far less tangible. 
And there are historical targets that are, that are just, just be just far beyond that. Like, you know, sort of a, just suffice it to say like a, a circulatory system within the universe that, that moves and balances things within the universe unseen, suspected now, but unseen as, as a living, breathing organism, our universe. Right. And that's, that's an amazing thing for me to think about that. And I know that there have been things that viewers produced as their evidences and their sketches of things that weren't even thought of until 10, 12 years after they were sketching that stuff. And then it comes out in scientific American. (laughs) It's got an artist concept of, you know, this thing that's kind of like a circulatory system within the universe balancing you know, balancing energy within the universe kind of an idea. That's, it's fascinating stuff. I, remote viewing is a powerful tool. It really is. And in this kind of exploration, as long as it is taken in its humility and in what it really is, and you're not exaggerating and making it some ridiculous thing, and you're not standing up and saying, this really happened. It, remember, as you're, you and I are in agreement, we're talking about things we can't prove. We're just talking about them from a historical perspective, talking about multiple people with correlating data. And that's what we're saying. And we're saying that something that somebody did 20 years ago, same coordinates, viewers today will describe the same things that somebody was seeing 20 years ago or 30 years ago. Those are important distinctions, but they are also, they have to be taken with a grain of reality, which says we could be making it all up in our brains. Unlikely. <clears throat> given I know what viewers can do with targets with feedback, like, like that says, okay, here's what you were supposed to see in the blind. And here's what you did see, you know, connect the dots on this, that if I can have, I have absolute unequivocal, right. Quantifiable proof of what they're capable of doing in that respect. Can I at least on to a certain degree, accept what they're doing there as accurate. Yeah, I think that's a fair statement to, to have as long as it's as I not to be repetitive. The caveat is I can't prove it, nor can anybody else. So you have to, if somebody stands up and starts spouting this off to you as reality, like accept it because it's real. You have to take a step back and understand it's the human brain interpreting the waveform expressions of something, typically in a place where they have absolutely no reference for it, none. And that has to be understood. It still makes it fun. It still makes it interesting. It still makes it, you know, educational. It still is good training. It's a tremendous experience. People come away from it moved in powerful ways because they begin to accept the reality of they're not alone. They're not alone in the universe. And they know there's other things out there existing, struggling, working, advancing, you know, some failing, some succeeding, some on the zenith rise up and some of the, them on a, you know, on the slippery slope down, just like we seem to be. So some more advanced, some less advanced, some just as advanced, all of them have been seen out there. And now that's kind of it. Now, I think one last question. When you send folks to, I mean, this really, this really messes with your head. So 
when you send folks to historical targets with you know some significant event in some other life forms historical cycle do they ever perceive the other remote viewers that have already been there you mean viewers seeing other viewers yeah yeah that happens oh so so somebody who went there 30 years ago they might oh, no 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 that'd be a weird paradox no it's a, that's a good question but no. <laughs> right because it's because if it's this point I'm, in time right right i suppose that I suppose that there is a possibility for that to occur. And yeah. Yeah, I, it's a very good question. I, I think it's, yeah, I, I, think well, I told you it would mess with your head. <laughs> no, I, it doesn't mess my, I love stuff like that. I mean, right. I'm just trying to think, I mean, it would make sense. It's certainly a possibility. Yeah. That it could happen. But I, just the, the raw answer to the question, can viewers perceive other viewers? Yes, they can. Yeah. They, how each viewer perceives other viewers and other things is up to the modalities of perception that that viewer has. Some of them are very powerful and visually, and some of them are more empathically. So they feel the presence of, a, of another viewer, right? Where others will go, oh, there's Sean over there. Just because their brain works that way and it assembles visual imagery as a modality, of as a dominant or prominent modality of perception it does that at the speed of thought for you but and other people you know are everything in between different modalities for everybody the idea is to try to develop through intention a good strong balanced set of modalities like being visual auditory or you know visual auditory tactile those kinds of things will as a viewer will be helpful and wherever you start off you can always you can always add the new tools to your toolbox. It just requires intentional work to make that happen. And it'll come. It's like any. All right, my friend, this, yeah. this was extremely fascinating as always. I, I could probably ask you questions until the, the cows come home, but I think it'll probably ended here, but I look forward to many future discussions. Yeah, Sean. Thanks. my friend. Thank you, everybody. Support this guy, you know, like click the likes and the things like whatever you're supposed to do. Just do what he says. All right. Thank you again. <laughs> Bye.